Uh, if you were here last week, you know about the conversation we're having. So it's kind of a new conversation for our church, but it points back to the first conversation we had as a church about what it means for us to be a church. Because if you're going to be a part of a new community like this, you should probably have a conversation about what a church is and how we're going to move forward in that sense of calling as a community. And so uh, last week I, I began to unpack this, but I want to revisit it to just sort of make sure we're all on the same page and then we can walk forward together a little bit. Uh, if you're holding a coffee cup from South Bend City Church in your hand right now, you are holding not just the logo, uh, but a symbol that was meant to remind us of this early conversation about what we are as a community. There's a triangle in that cup, and if you were here last week, you know that that triangle actually reminds us of two underlying symbols. Let me show you these again. So on the left, you have a triquetra, which is this uh, ancient symbol, this Trinitarian Celtic knot which uh, comes out of Celtic culture and gets sort of brought into Christian thinking as a reminder of uh, the sort of center of, of what we believe in the story that we find ourselves in, the, the story that the Christian faith is telling us, that God is Father and Son and Spirit, that God has created the world and wants it to be here, that God has arrived in the world in flesh and blood, died on our behalf, raised to new life, and that God uh, is with us in the presence of Spirit, uh, breathing in us and transforming us. This is a central picture of the story that we find ourselves in if we call ourselves Christian. And uh, we have that symbol there to remind us this is something we inherit, right? We didn't make this up. Uh, we don't get to sort of do whatever we want with it, but we receive it from our tradition and we want to stand humble before the roots of our faith. So that's there on the left. On the right, we have the delta, uh, which is a Greek symbol, uh, which means, among other things, uh, change. And deltas show up in math equations and medical notebooks and other kinds of things to actually connote the change in a variable. And we, we also have that in front of us because it reminds us we live in a time of dramatic change. Uh, it's easy to um, sort of look past this or to assume that all periods of time are created equal, but I don't think they are. And I think right, right now the human race is living in a period of dramatic change. It's philosophical and cultural and spiritual and mental and theological and it's uh, got a lot of sort of undercurrents that we talked about a little bit last week. But in the face of all that change, new questions, new information, new worldviews, new possibilities, a church and a person of faith, uh, we have to ask ourselves, like, how do we relate to these two things, right? And I, I'm arguing that there's at least four different ways that you could navigate this scenario where you have this inherited faith which comes to us from ancient times and a changing world with new technologies and new discoveries and new worldviews and new ideas. There's at least a few ways to navigate that. One way would be that a person or a community like this could double down on the rooted faith stuff. You know, we have our theology, we have our Christian story, and we could just sort of ignore the changing world stuff. And I've argued this, this is like when you walk into a gathering like this, and then you walk out at the end, and you're kind of asking yourself, did the pastor just live in a vault all week? Because there's all this stuff going on in the world, questions, ideas, headlines, difficulties, injustice, and then we came in here, and it just, we, we didn't hear any of that, right? I mean, that, that would be a way that you could try to navigate this, to sort of double down on the roots of your faith and just sort of ignore uh, the change that's going on around us. Uh, another way of navigating this, which is not a, a totally different way, but intensifies that posture, would be to double down on the roots of our faith and not just ignore the change, but to proactively protect ourselves from it. Right? This is where a pastor, a person like me, might stand up and say, don't read these books, don't ask these questions, don't go there. Where a community proactively insulates itself from these things because they seem disruptive, because they feel like a threat. 
Now, a third posture sort of goes the other direction, and that would be to, to look at our faith, our theology, the story that the Christian narrative is telling, and to see it as a sort of uh, outdated, sort of tragically antiquated thing, sort of unfashionable now, and to turn down the volume on our, on our faith, on our theology, and, and just sort of give ourselves over to whatever the thinking is of the moment. This might assume that whatever the, the most recent thinking is on any question is definitely the best thinking on any question. Now, I'm, I'm arguing that those three different ways of interacting with this tension between rooted faith and changing world, I'm arguing that none of those lives up to the Bible's picture of the church. None of those lives up to what we are here for, because I think there's another option, which is that we would actually locate the life of our church, that we would find the experience of faith living in the tension between these things, not giving up on our faith, our roots, our theology, but not turning a blind eye to the questions that are being asked around us, but to actually like enter in, to wrestle together, to grow through this stuff together. I think as a church community, it can be tempting to avoid that posture because it's messy, because we might actually have to find out that we disagree with each other on really important things, right? But the problem is um, avoiding the messiness of that means avoiding what the church actually is at her best. And last week I was trying to make my case from the book of Acts, which is that early picture of the church that we take our, our inspiration from. So, um, so this month what we wanted to do is not just throw the, that idea at you, but to wrestle with some examples of how could it be that a church would be utterly faithful to its historic theological roots while at the same time actually openly, honestly wrestling with what we see happening around us, with questions, ideas, new discoveries, new perspectives. We want to try this out as a community and see if we can't shrink the church a little bit. That was a joke, you guys. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to talk about sexuality, which proves my point. Uh, I told the joke last week. It seems like the church is going really well. Let's see if we can fix that. Uh, so next week, we're going to talk about sexuality. Um, I know that even as I say that in a room like this, uh, it could be that your heart, your heart rate increased a little bit, right? Um, maybe because of some personal relationship to that word or your experience of sexuality in church, or maybe because of the culture war, the fights, the really, really tense sort of arguments that have been had over uh, those issues. Uh, but what I'm promising you is that we will endeavor to have that conversation with every bit of care and character and integrity that we try to bring to every conversation. And I know that we don't always nail that perfectly, but we are deeply committed to reaching for that. And I promise you that I'm working harder than ever to make sure that happens next week. Now, uh, next week, we're also going to come together for communion, uh, for that meal that Jesus uh, shares with us. And that's actually strategic because I think when we talk about something like sexuality, it can be easy to get stuck in our heads or to be stuck on the issues, um, or to be convinced that agreement is the basis of our unity. And it has never been um, the church's witness that agreeing on all the issues is the basis of our unity. It's always been the church's witness that Christ is the basis of our unity. And so uh, we thought that we would come together around Jesus' table to enact that next week. So I'm saying definitely don't miss next week. It'll be interesting if nothing else, right? Um, and then the week after that, I want to remind you uh, that I'm bringing in a good friend of mine, a guy named Jonathan Merritt. Uh, he's a writer. He writes for The Atlantic magazine and for Religion News Service, and he's written a number of books about faith and culture. Jonathan sort of situates his work in that same space that I'm describing, wrestling with rooted faith and a changing world. And Jonathan uh, grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt. He's not only the son of a Baptist pastor, his dad was the president of the Baptists. 
That's true. He, was, he grew up in the, the household of the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then Jonathan left the Bible Belt and moved to New York City, where he was confronted with the fact that his language for faith didn't work in New York City the way it worked uh, where he came from in the South. And so he wrestled with that for quite a while, and he's written a book that just came out called Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And it's all about that challenge of this historic language of faith in a modern world. Uh, so I'll be interviewing Jonathan in two weeks. That's Labor Day, Sunday, and Tuesday. I look forward to that. But today, we want to talk about another sort of actual instance where you might find the tension between rooted faith and changing world. The, the, the place that we want to move to today in our conversation is talking about faith and science. Because surely uh, some of us have felt the tension or the perceived conflict between faith and science. Uh, a friend of mine uh, named Jim Stump, who's in the room, but I won't point at him yet because that's not nice. Uh, Jim is a member of our community, and he's also spent years as a professor at a Christian college. And Jim was telling me this story this week. So Jim, uh, one of the classes that he taught was called Senior Year Experience, and this is a capstone course where students from every major come together, and it's meant to help them sort of integrate their learning from the past four years as they get ready to move out into what's next, right? And so uh, one of the questions that are wrestled with in this uh, senior year experience, as Jim taught it, was faith and science. And Jim was telling me that he would try to gauge where students were at and what assumptions they were bringing to that conversation before they got started. So he passed out a survey. And the survey included an open-ended question, which students could answer however they wanted. And the question was simply this, what is the purpose of science? What's the purpose of science? And Jim was telling me that the number one response uh, now, granted, this is open-ended, right? So anybody can write anything. But he tallied up, and over hundreds of surveys, the most frequent response from students was that the purpose of science is to disprove the Bible. Yeah, interesting, right? Now, he's not saying the majority of students responded that way, because, again, it, they could answer anything. But he's saying the most frequent response was that students said the purpose of science is to disprove the Bible. That's um, a seriously felt conflict, Right? Uh, surveys that look at the experience of like 18 to 35-year-olds who are leaving behind any kind of faith identity or church affiliation, uh, often near the top of the list of why they've uh, left that behind is their perceived conflict between faith and science, which uh, makes me think that like when people like me stand up and essentially say that you got to check your brain at the door, we're really creating a scenario where somebody's going to either lose their mind or lose their faith or both. And uh, so, like, we should talk about this, right? We should dig into this a little bit. Now, I don't think that most scientists are sitting there in their white lab coats, like Mr. Burns from Simpsons, like, yes, we'll make them lose their faith, right? Like, I don't think uh, there's some vast conspiracy among people who work in the sciences to do that. Uh, but I do understand that people will sometimes leverage uh, the observations or the current conclusions of scientific endeavors against faith the people who write uh, the books like The New Atheists, who are sort of very aggressively and evangelistically trying to get you to give up on God, I do understand uh, that some of those voices will, they'll say, you know, science disproves your faith. So they'll, they'll try to sort of, uh, to be ironic, they'll baptize science into their arguments against God. That, and that, that can be a thing that happens sometimes. In fact, I, I would argue that, that one of the things going on in this conflict, this tension between faith and science, uh, is that sometimes science or, or people speaking from the realm of science or claiming to represent science, sometimes those voices can be guilty of overreaching, of sort of speaking beyond the spaces where science is qualified to reach. 
Let me give you uh, what I would consider an example of this. Uh, a TV show that I'm crazy about, because I'm actually a big science lover, a TV show called Cosmos. Any fans? Yeah, right? Yeah, ex excellent, beautiful, fantastic. But the opening line, so this is a show that was originally produced with Carl Sagan and then redone with Neil deGrasse Tyson, two eminent scientists. The opening line, I remember sitting at home, so excited to watch this show, and I hit play on Netflix, and I was struck by the, the very radical claim that was made right out of the gate, and it was this. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Now, what's astonishing to me about that is when we, we talk about like what science is, we could say to begin with, science is a method. I would say before anything else, and by the way, I'm a total rookie, the scientist in the room, you can fix all this with me later, right? But you could begin by saying science is a method, right? You've heard of the scientific method? And the, and the method itself, which emerges in the 16th and 17th centuries, is built on an intentional narrowing of its field of inquiry. And the fact that like, the reason science works and the reason it gives us such incredible discoveries and the reason that it makes the world better in so many ways is that it was built on an intentional narrowing to say we are going to use these methods to inquire about the kinds of things that can be empirically observed and tested and repeated in experiments that's, that's actually the virtue of science, is that it narrows its field of inquiry to the things that can be empirically observed and tested and repeated in experiments. So I would argue maybe the problem with this here is, if Carl Sagan is speaking sort of out of the authority of science and saying, um, from science we speak and declare that the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be, well, if you're speaking from a field that has intentionally narrowed its inquiry to those things which can be empirically observed, but then say that things that can't be empirically observed don't exist, I would argue you've just made a bit of a leap. Uh, for a super cheap metaphor, it's like if I found glasses that I could wear on my face that filtered out the color blue and then walked around the world and then declared there is no such thing as blue jays that would probably be overreaching, right? And sometimes uh, what can happen in this conflict is it can feel like science is sort of reaching beyond uh, the places where it actually has the, like, the tools to name and observe, right? Now, to be fair, in this uh, sort of historic conflict between science and faith, it's not just that science is sometimes guilty of overreaching. I would argue voices of faith have been two. Like, for example, in the early 1600s, the Roman Inquisition drags into its interrogations a man named Galileo. And Galileo had gotten one of these newfangled devices called a telescope and was making all sorts of observations. And from those observations, he drew the conclusion that the Earth is not the center of the universe, but rather that, for example, the Earth revolves around the sun. And certain voices from the religious establishment had a huge problem with this. Now, to be fair, sometimes this narrative is overplayed a little bit, but it is true that there were religious voices that really came after Galileo because they said, you can't do that. Look at our scriptures. They say things like this. They say in the Psalms, 
There we go. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Read the Bible, man. Or again in the Psalms, in 104, he set the earth on its foundation. It, can, it doesn't move, man, right? That's what our scriptures tell us. Or in Ecclesiastes 1, the sun rises and the sun sets, and the sun hurries back to where it rises. The sun is the thing doing the moving. Read the Bible. These are the actual sorts of texts that are used to condemn Galileo's conclusions. Uh, Francis Collins, uh, who is a great example of a man of deep faith and profound accomplishment in science, Collins uh, is the guy who led the effort to map the human genome, and he's now the head of the National Institutes of Health, which is one of the world's most important scientific bodies, also a man of a very committed Christian faith, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a bit, but Francis Collins tells the story of Galileo, and he even quotes from a sermon preached at the time which said this, geometry is of the devil. Now, I agree, but for other reasons. Because <laughs> I didn't do so well in the math side of my education. Mathematicians should be banished as the authors of all heresies. Galileo's pretended discovery vitiates, which is a fancy word for uh, renders, uh, uh, it doesn't work anymore. It breaks down the idea of the argument. It vitiates the whole Christian plan of salvation and cast suspicion on the doctrine of the incarnation. I would argue this is a moment in history of the conversation between science and faith where it's uh, the people of faith who are overreaching a little bit, who are saying this book that we have is a science textbook and it criticizes what you are saying, so you can't say what you are saying. We've seen overreaching on both sides. Now, you might say, well, like, these are different ways of narrating the world, and there comes a point where it's either one story or the other, right? It's either, um, it's either the perspective of science and the way that science narrates why we are here and how we are here, or it's the perspective of faith that narrates why we are here and, and how we are here. I would argue it can be that you could have more than one story to get the whole picture, right? And to explain this, I'm going to borrow now from a metaphor from another great voice, a reliable voice in this conversation. John Polkinghorne is both an Anglican priest and a, a highly reputable, renowned quantum physicist, because apparently he didn't have anything else to do with this time. So he's an Anglican priest and a quantum physicist, and from the best I can tell, he comes up with this metaphor that I'm going to modify slightly. The idea is this, though. When we, when we talk about discovering that something is happening in the physical world, or something exists in the physical world, and we want to ask questions of how and why does this thing happen or exist. Uh, for example, you could stumble upon a boiling tea kettle of water on the stove and ask, why or how do I find a boiling tea kettle here on the stove? Now, one story that would narrate the meaning or the, 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 the phenomena that you were observing there, one story would be, well, uh, there is a burner underneath the kettle, and the burner is transferring energy in the form of heat to the water inside the kettle. And as that energy is transferred to the water, it excites the molecules in there. And eventually that leads uh, to the gas that's being created. And at sea level, the amount of atmospheric pressure that's stacked on top of that water there finally sort of relents and meets its match. When the energy is measured at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, that's how you get water boiling. Completely true accurate and incredibly useful explanation of why and how this thing is happening, right? Another opportunity to explain why and how this thing is happening. What if I told you, well, uh, my whole life, my grandmother was like the most important person in my world. 
We grew up, she would live right down the street from me. She was always loving, always kind, always called out the best in me. And uh, later in life here in the last few years, as she got older and wasn't able to leave the house as much, I would walk down to her house every week. Every week we had a, uh, a tea date. And I would walk over and she would put the kettle on and make some hot tea and we would sit and talk. And a year ago today, my grandmother died. And I'm really missing her today. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to make some tea. And that's going to sort of bring back to me the memory of my grandmother and help me uh, appreciate her. Completely valid, completely true account of why the water is boiling, right? I, I tell you that because it's an example of how you can have uh, two stories narrating something that's happening or something that exists, and they both matter, they're both helpful, and I would even argue that without both stories, you have an incomplete picture of what's happening there, right? Well, I, I want to sort of take that framework and suggest that it also would help us think about what is for many the sort of uh, toughest uh, flashpoint in the conflict between science and faith. That would be uh, the question of the origins of life or human origins. That would be when we talk about evolution, right? Now, um, many of us have heard from many places, either from voices of science or from voices of faith, that this is the line in the sand between two fundamentally incompatible ways of narrating the world. Uh, in my experience of faith, in communities of faith, I have heard from preachers at pulpits, I've heard from professors in college with PhDs, that you can't have both. I've heard a preacher say that uh, evolution will never be proven true because the Bible doesn't allow for it. I heard a professor of theology tell me that if I give up on six literal days of creation happening just several thousand years ago, I also have to give up on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, so that can be the way this is narrated from the side of faith. And then from the side of science, uh, it's like I said earlier, it's often that evolutionary observations and conclusions are leveraged to say there's no need or room for God in this process anymore. So we've effectively sort of gotten rid of that inconvenient God thing. But I'm just not sure that it has to be that way. If you've been around this community, you've heard us teach from the book of Genesis frequently. And as we do, the best theological and contextual and historical work on the nature of the Genesis 1 and 2 text, uh, we start hearing certain uh, messages resonating out of it. When we read in Genesis 1 that God is speaking, let there be light, and then from light he begins to establish order and begins to divide space and then to fill space with life. And then when we read um, God declaring man and woman the bearers of the divine image, we hear a profoundly important an incredibly relevant word for the year 2018 about what it means to be human. And when we read in Genesis 2 um, that God reaches down and draws man out of the dust and then kisses with the breath of life, with the divine spirit, that perhaps what it means to be human is to wrestle with this, this um, hybrid experience of dirt and spirit, of earth and divine life, that these are uh, profound and relevant and revolutionary words for human existence in the year 2018. Uh, and then we hear Darwin saying uh, four billion years uh, from no life at all to the uh, most elementary types of organisms to all the complexity of life that we see today. And um, I would argue these can be two ways of narrating the world that work together, in fact. And that if we've been told you can't have one without the other, I'm just here to say I'm not sure that that's true. Now, I'm borrowing here from a metaphor that Jim shared with me this week that I found really helpful. And he said, think about, uh, 
Think about how an individual human life goes from conception to birth. Uh, I have to be really careful as I narrate this particular biological process for obvious reasons, but you know, there's conception. And then there's everything that happens after it, right? Now, many if not most of us are at least generally familiar with um, that series of processes that takes uh, a life from the moment of conception to birth, right? We're aware there's some biology going on there, but there's a process that is sort of unleashed or set forth in the moment of conception, and that hopefully, if everything goes the way that we would hope it would go, that takes us all the way to the birth of a healthy baby boy or baby girl. Now, I know all sorts of believers, all sorts of Christians who are generally biologically aware, who know and affirm the biological description of those processes, but at the very same time celebrate and revel in the words of the psalmist who says that God knit me together in my mother's womb. And it seems that most of us don't feel there's an irreconcilable conflict between those two descriptions, but rather that in every bit of that natural process that unfolds, seemingly of its own sort of energy and strength, that we celebrate this divine sort of work that is working in and through that process. Now, I don't want to oversimplify here, but I would argue if we can hold those two stories together in the development of an individual human life, we might be able to hold together these, these bigger, longer, more overarching stories about the development of all of life and look for ways to celebrate the divine hand at work in every bit of that process. I would argue Christians ought to be good at holding two stories together. Christians ought to be good at holding two stories together because at the center of our faith, there is a paradox that narrates two stories about Jesus. We celebrate a fully human. You don't get to mitigate the humanity of Jesus if you want to be an Orthodox Christian. And we celebrate fully God. And those are two stories that some might say don't work together, but at the center of our faith is, in fact, two stories sitting side by side. Now, um, it's, not, uh, it's not fair to just simply say, see, isn't this neat? Just put the two stories together and everything's fine. Uh, I said there are messy challenges in these uh, types of conversations, and this is no exception to that. So to be intellectually honest with you and to invite us into further reflection as a community, let me point you to at least four serious challenges, um, theological, philosophical, scientific, that, that have to be sort of worked out together if we're going to try to let these two stories uh, of human origins of, of why the world is here today live side by side. Four, uh, four here. First. There's something to really be wrestled with about the relationship between sin, suffering, and death. In one account, in one way of narrating the world that we find ourselves in today, um, human sin is what then gives birth to suffering and death in the world. That's uh, often been the reading of our scriptures and a way of making sense of all of this. Uh, but frankly, if you're going to embrace evolution, you have to embrace uh, many, 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 many eons and and uh, millennia and like billions of years of death before you get to a point in the story where you, you have homo sapiens uh, capable of moral reasoning, uh, capable of being culpable, of doing something that we would say is wrong. And so that's something to work on. What do you, what do, you do if, if you have a story that says that death and uh, certain kinds of suffering enter the picture before human beings that we would say can sin enter the picture? That's just one of the questions. Another question to wrestle with would be the nature of human identity. It's uh, consistently been the theological witness of Christian faith that to be human is to be unique in important theological ways. 
that, um, that there's uh, an intrinsic and divine worth to being human that in some ways distinguishes uh, the human value and experience from all other lived experience. And uh, if you locate humans at this point in this sort of incremental evolutionary chain, it does raise questions. How would you describe the uniqueness of human identity? How, how would you argue for it? What does it mean? Do, does it hold up, right? Uh, another question uh, that you have to wrestle with, and this is really a category of questions, would be the nature of divine action. Uh, if this is starting to feel a little heady for you guys, that's okay, we'll come out of it in a second, okay? Uh, but divine action is essentially to say, how do, you, how do you work out questions of God working in and among the physical world? Right? Now, in, in evolution, for example, it's questions of like, is, uh, how would you describe God's relationship to that process? Uh, does he just like sort of set it loose and walk away from it and let it go wherever it wants to go and do whatever it wants to do? These are important questions to wrestle with. If the question of divine action feels kind of far away and abstract for you, I would just argue if you have ever prayed and asked God to do anything in the physical world, and then when you're done praying or even in the middle of your prayer, some part of your brain is like, wait, I don't know what I think about that. Does God do that kind of thing? Well, then you've wrestled with questions of divine action. That, that's the question of divine action on a personal level. And we also have to wrestle with it on this big story level of the world that we are in today. And then the existence of Adam and Eve. Um, my very, very rudimentary understanding of the best conclusions of the best science today uh, leans heavily on genetic evidence, uh, which argues pretty forcefully that we can trace back Homo sapiens to something like 10,000 members of the species that emerge in Africa. Uh, the genetics uh, are wrestling with whether you can find your way back to an individual couple. And by the way, it does seem that the genetics are capable of making those kinds of discernments. So. Um, it raises questions of, does the human race actually go back to an individual couple? Does that matter? Does the theology of the scriptures hold together if we don't? What do you do with Paul's letters? Paul leans kind of heavy on this Adam-Jesus thing that he does in the New Testament. Uh, there's a lot to be worked out there. And I don't have any answers for any of those for you today. <laughs> um, but I promised you that we would have a, a good faith conversation about this stuff. So I want to be honest with you. These are the hard things uh, that have to be worked out. And a lot of people run into those questions and then kind of back away from the conversation because they're not sure what to do with them. Now, I'm very excited to let you know that if you're interested in these kinds of things, if you want to wrestle further with these questions, and I hope that we will be a community that wrestles with these kinds of questions, we have an opportunity to do that. It involves my friend Jim, who I already mentioned, and now I'm going to call him out because he is here. Jim, will you wave for us? Yeah, Jim's over here. That's Jim Stump. Uh, so Jim is a uh, highly qualified person to shepherd us into some of these conversations. Jim has a PhD in philosophy, and he works with BioLogos, which is an organization in Grand Rapids that was founded by Francis Collins, the same geneticist and head of the National Institutes of Health that I mentioned earlier. BioLogos uh, works full-time to help scholars and Christians and communities of faith work out these questions of science and faith, especially around the origins of life. So that's Jim's full-time work. Uh, I know Jim well, I trust Jim immensely, and Jim has graciously volunteered to do some teaching, to host a conversation for our community this fall. Now, we don't know when exactly it'll happen, and we don't know the format yet, because we'd like to gauge interest. So if you go to the South Bend City Church Collective on Facebook, which is a space that you should know about, whether you're interested in this or not, because it's a great place to connect with our community. If you go to the Collective today, you'll see that Jim has posted a link to a survey. If you're interested in being a part of that conversation, Jim's going to uh, format some way of having sort of three big sessions or topics 
around what is the nature of the Bible? What does it mean to trust God's word or to say that it's divinely inspired? That's sort of one big chunk. What is evolution? What's actually being described by the real science of evolution today? And what do we do with all of that? That's three sessions. Jim's going to uh, lead that. And if you want to be a part of it, go to the collective and give your input so that we can figure out the best format for that. Uh, that'll be a good place to dig further into these conversations. Now, um, right now, some of you might be thinking, boy, that just felt like a huge adventure in missing the point. <laughs> like, maybe you're not especially intrigued by this stuff, or maybe you're a little bored by it, or maybe you didn't come here for that today. Totally okay, first of all. Totally okay. Uh, but I would argue, first of all, there is much at stake. Um, our world, our society is wrestling with big, weighty questions right now. We have a technology called CRISPR, which can literally edit a human's genome in real time. We have uh, AI here and coming around the corner in ways that will fundamentally um, disrupt our notions of what it means to be human and the world that we are creating together. There were profound moral and ethical questions mixed in with these technological advancements and these moments in science that we are experiencing together. And I would argue that our world will be at its best and that we will create the best future when we bring uh, the best thinkers from science and some of the best thinkers from faith together at the same table. Because really, like, these questions involve both stories. They involve questions of capability and scientific observation and knowledge, and they involve the deepest questions of morals and ethic and personhood and what it means to be human, and we need to work these out together. So if we just play along with this divorce between science and faith, we'll be complicit. We'll, we'll be a part of the problem, leaving our world to a future where we don't do our best thinking on these kinds of questions. So I think the stakes are high for the world that we are creating but I want also, I want to argue that the stakes are high for the human soul. Uh, we read this psalm earlier in our gathering, Psalm 19. I want to share this with you again. Listen closely. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Now, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In Romans, uh, Paul writes this. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. That's often been a very orthodox, historic Christian thinking that God has essentially given us two books, the Bible and the world all around us. And that the best understanding of the world around us is actually spiritually, theologically important for what God wants to do in us. I would argue that whatever you think the nature of God is, you will probably start to line up with that whether you intend to or not. Whatever you think God's power looks like, when you want to be powerful, you will try to emulate that kind of power. Whatever you think the glory of God is, we are glory-hungry creatures, and so we will look for that kind of glory. So I'm saying that like, if we, if we have a misapprehension of how it is that this world comes together and comes alive, that will turn into some misapprehensions about the nature of God and what it means to be human. So I actually want the best thinking we can get, the truest insight on the world around us, the physical processes, the natural phenomena, because they actually give us a glimpse into the nature, power, and glory of God. And I wonder, like, 
what if part of what is broken in the world today is we think that God's glory looks like the kind of glory that we have imagined. We think that God's power looks like the kind of power that we have imagined, where God speaks like a steamroller, just sort of uh, manipulating, forcing his will without regard for the raw materials around him. That's a certain vision of power that might lead to certain kinds of lives that create certain kinds of worlds. But what if, what if the actual nature of God's glory and power is that he has been whispering and wooing and loving this world in its process of becoming for billions of years? What if God has been patiently coaxing this world toward what it wants to be all along? That's a particular posture. That's a certain picture of glory. That's a certain kind of power. I think of the people that came to Jesus and began to understand that God was being revealed in him. And then they wanted him to act certain kinds of power in the world. They wanted him to do fireworks. They wanted him to condemn his enemies. They wanted him to bring a certain vision of God into the world. And some of them missed Jesus because they didn't understand that he was revealing something fundamentally different about the nature of God. And where they might have thought that he would have brought a military to take over Jerusalem and conquer Rome, they looked and they saw him hanging on a cross, which is a peculiar kind of glory. It's a long-suffering glory. It's a sacrificial patience that might also be revealed in the best pictures of the natural world that we have today and might inspire us toward a certain kind of working and loving in the world. So I don't think it's just that there are things at stake uh, for these ethical questions, these moral pictures. I think there's something at stake for the soul. Barbara Brown Taylor uh, writes a book that I highly recommend. And by the way, uh, we're pushing a reading list to social media today too, a number of books and resources that you might find helpful. And her book is on the list. Uh, she writes, she's a preacher, uh, she's a really good theologian. She writes a book called The Luminous Web, which is essays about science and faith. And in uh, the closing chapter of that book, she quotes a Jesuit paleontologist from the 1800s named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And Chardin, not unlike Polkinghorne with physics, uh, Chardin was also a priest and a scientist. And uh, he was one of the early ones, a couple hundred years ago, who was wrestling with this account of evolutionary origins of life and the profound nature of his faith. And it's Chardin who says this, less and less do I see any difference between research and adoration. And if that's uh, at stake in this conversation between science and faith, I think we better be very brave and humble and thoughtful and keep pressing forward together. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, please don't miss next week. It'll be a really good and important conversation for our community. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.